Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get going, I want to take a moment to tell you about some exciting news for high school sports fans across the country. SB Live Sports has launched a free iPhone and Android app featuring the latest high school sports news, scores, videos, polls, photos, podcasts, player rankings, and much more. With the SB Live Sports app, it is now even easier to follow your favorite team. With real-time scores and news alerts, as well as video highlights, podcasts, photo galleries, rankings, game coverage, and much more, the app delivers all the content you want in one convenient place. The SB Live Sports app features exclusive content from on-the-ground reporters across the country, and it's the number one source for Washington high school sports fans. With coverage from reporters Todd Mellis and Andy Bueller, me, Dan Dickow, SB Live's recruiting expert, this SB Live Sports app is available at no charge in the Apple App Store and Google Play Store. Download it today. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Out from the deep corner for three. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's on now. Downtown Dan connects. Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. Well, I mean, I've seen Dan Dicko hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school trying to mimic all your moves. Today's episode of the March Madness Rewind on the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow, and SB Live Sports for the Believe Podcast Network brings you a conversation with a coach that is doing a tremendous job in the SEC. Unfortunately, if you're an Arkansas Razorback fan, his team just got knocked out last night to a very good Baylor team, but that shouldn't take anything away from what Coach Eric Musselman has accomplished in two short seasons uh, for Arkansas. After getting Nevada to the NCAA tournament a couple times, he went to Arkansas, and he has got that program on the rise they play a fun style of basketball um, they compete uh, they share it and they play hard and they play fast uh, something that I think is going to be uh, traits of a program to watch over the next few years and the reason I think they're going to be a team to watch is uh, Eric Musselman's uh, experience in the NBA with having to transform rosters on the fly from trades uh, from calling guys up from the D League which is now the G League um, is going to give him a lot of experience in forming rosters through the transfer portal something he was great at at Nevada he's showing to be great at it again at Arkansas so without further ado our March Madness Rewind re-release with head coach of the Arkansas Razorbacks Eric Musselman Welcome to today's episode of the ISO with myself, Dan Dickow, and SB Live Sports on the Believe Podcast Network. Today's guest, somebody that, quite frankly, was my first coach in the professional ranks uh, after being drafted in 02 with the Atlanta Hawks in Summer League. He's gone on to be 
a very successful coach, literally at every level, uh, the G League, which used to be the CBA, the NBA, and now making tremendous um, inroads in the SEC at his current stop at the University of Arkansas. Coach Eric Musselman. Eric, thanks for joining us from Fayetteville today. Hopefully life is well for you, and you're trying to figure out how to get ready for what's starting to look like there will be a college basketball season. Fingers crossed, but it's looking that way. No, thanks so much, Dan. Uh, yeah, I think we're all excited about, um, you know, getting back to some normalcy. And, and uh, we've, we've had um, several weeks now of full practices, and our guys have done a good job, you know, knock on wood thus far of, um, you know, we've had no positive cases at all on our team. And, um, again, the guys have done a great job of, 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 you know, coming to practice and kind of creating their own bubble, so to speak. Well, I follow you on social media, and I've seen the um, the intensity from seeing you in practice, being involved with you in practice, but I've also seen the lightheartedness and the ability to kind of look big picture stuff during this time on social media with you wearing different organizations' masks or shirts during practices and workouts. Um, can you give us a quick take on maybe the most unique mask that you've worn around your team, maybe to, to convey a certain message for the day? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, we kind of started off this theme stuff uh, with recruits where um, we would recreate an NBA scene, um, you know, whatever the player, whatever that recruit wanted to do. So we had some fun with that. And then, um, when we met with the administration, one of the things we talked about is how could we encourage um, our fan base, our student body, our current players, um, the athletic department, everybody involved to kind of mask up and wear masks. And so um, I thought it would be neat to try to start collecting um, different masks from whether it's MLB, NFL, um, NBA teams, and then kind of wear them and create a theme and some days we talk about, um, you know, what I'm wearing and, and go through a history of maybe uh, pro organization or, you know, the other day it was Pittsburgh Pirates. And, you know, when I was growing up, the We Are Family song um, by Sister Sledge, um, you know, and we want to be a family here and how that kind of, you know, that past we can utilize into who we are to be trying to become today. So um, just trying to have fun. Um, but you know, along those same lines, trying to, trying to encourage people to wear masks and, and, and also, uh, for our own players to have a little bit of fun with it as well and educate them on, on some of the past history of some of these different, uh, programs or talk about star players, maybe, um, you know, I, I, depending on the team, you know, you never know who you get the mask from. It could be a, um, an equipment manager. Um, it could be a, a, a head coach of a team. It could be from someone in the front office. And then you kind of can kind of relay to your team um, how relationships are formed. You mentioned, Dan, you and I, um, you know, being together at that Shaw Summer League in Boston, um, your rookie year and, and how relationships last throughout the course of time. Yeah, you mentioned um, masks and the company that I'm working with, SB Live, we have just actually made inroads in Arkansas. When we get masks 
finished up and, and made, we'll definitely send some your way. We'd love to have you, uh, you know, support us and share the message of SB Live supporting sports in the different markets that we're in. But when I look at some of those masks and the fact that you use them to kind of tailor some messages to recruits, I look at recruiting as being such a big difference maker in college sports these days, and in particular basketball. But you have to have a philosophy. You have to have a, a direction with how to go about it. You guys, you mentioned the, the recreating different moments. How did you come up with your recruiting philosophy in this day and age of social media and really having to, to get creative? Well, I think a couple things, Dan. Number one, you know, how do you become different? Um, is one thing and then um, you know like it, it everything just kind of evolves like we had a player on campus um, and I kind of got in a defensive stance and then that kind of spurred you know a thought process of hey instead of just doing a uh, a recruit with the normal uniform picture where it's kind of staged and like why not get get involved and, and it created conversations with recruits prior to them coming on campus last year. In other words, who's your favorite NBA player? What's your favorite scene? And it allowed us to have kind of conversations where it wasn't just about Arkansas Razorback or just about the recruit. It kind of um, became all-encompassing to throw different thought processes out there. And then even with the masks, like what it does is um, if, if I wear a San Diego or a Los Angeles Charger mask, it allows me to pick up the phone, talk to a recruit who's seen that tweet, and then maybe it spurs us to talk about NFL football and where I grew up and who the team that I grew up watching and who my favorite players were. And it could be with a parent, um, you know, a parent who's semi-close to my age where I can talk about with the Chargers, Dan Fouts and what he meant to me. And maybe that particular dad uh, had a favorite team that he liked. And so uh, I think it just kind of spurs conversation amongst our staff with recruits. I've always felt that the best recruiters at the college level, whether, whether they're assistant coaches or head coaches, um, have the ability to ask questions that open up uh, conversation with those recruits and you really start opening up a dialogue when you've asked a question to a player that you're recruiting as far as who's your favorite player in the NBA or, or is there a moment such as the ones you talked about recreating, has any player ever given you such a unique answer, whether it's a player or a moment that's made you sit back and be like, that is such an insightful or thoughtful answer that his basketball IQ must be off the charts. I, I collect uh you know, jerseys of famous players. Um, and so sometimes I'll take a picture of my collection and maybe send it uh, to a recruit. And, and uh, one our workout room in my house kind of has a New York Knicks theme with, that has Willis Reed, Earl of Pearl Monroe, um, Walt Frazier, um, Dave DeBusher, some people like that. And, and a recruit actually told me his favorite player was, was, was Earl of Pearl Monroe, which, um, probably the most unique because obviously anybody we're recruiting never saw Earl of Pearl play live. Um, but it's interesting that a player would, and, and I'm sure that it was from a family member um, who brought up those New York Knicks teams of old. 
Um, and somehow that player did research on Earl of Pearl Monroe and his creativity with the bounce off the bounce um, and had found footage. So that was probably the most unique um, thing that I've ever heard a recruit say in regards to a favorite player or someone that he tried to emulate his game off. That's definitely going way back. I've seen the, the video highlights on NBA TV. My favorite player of all time is Pete Maravich. Uh, I've collected the jerseys. I've got them uh, in, in my basement in the closet. Um, I love hearing that from a young player that they kind of are a student of the game. You are a true student of the game because your father – was very instrumental in you loving the game of basketball and getting into it as both a player who played at the University of San Diego, uh, as well as then getting into coaching. Can you talk about the influence that your dad, Bill, had on you with the game of basketball? Yeah, I mean, I really didn't have any hobbies growing up, Dan. It was, uh, I mean, it was really interesting because uh, when I was, you know, going to, to school in third grade, so to speak, you know, I would wake up and we would either have the newspaper in front of us going through box scores or there would be game film, um, you know, when I'm getting ready to go to school. So I didn't, I didn't wake up to cartoons and Fred Flintstone. I woke up to University of Minnesota playing Indiana game footage um, or my dad and I would talk about box, box scores, whether it be Major League Baseball box scores. or, um, But he was my best friend. He was my idol. Um, I wanted to do what he did when I grew up. And so at a really, really young age, I knew that I wanted to, 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 to be a college basketball or professional basketball coach. It's interesting that my dad and I were actually the first father-son uh, head coaches in the history of the NBA, and that's something nobody can ever take away from us. Um, you know, it's something I have tremendous pride in. My son is now actually on our coaching staff uh, here um, as the director of recruiting. So um, it runs in the family. But I think really, Dan, like how many people um, growing up can say that, that, that Paul Brown, uh, the famous football coach, sat in our living room. And I remember my dad talking to Paul Brown about what it was going to be like my dad's first practice with the San Diego sales of the old ABA. And Paul Brown talked about the first team meeting that, that, that my dad was going to have as a professional coach um, and how much different that first team meeting was going to be with the pro team than a college team. Cause my dad was coming from the university of Minnesota to coach a, an ABA team and the, and the power of that first team meeting and how pro players antennas were, were going to be up and how as a pro coach, you're going to be judged and evaluated and the buy-in is going to take place within the first two minutes of that first meeting and the importance of preparation for that meeting. And so um, I think about all the relationships that my father had that I was exposed to um, one of my dad's good friends was Billy Martin, the former New York Yankee, Oakland A's, Minnesota Twins manager. Um, so I was around Billy Martin. Um, you know, I mentioned Paul Brown. Uh, Ballard Smith, who was the president of the San Diego Padres, was one of my dad's jogging friends, and they used to go on, on, on jogs together. And so I was exposed to sitting in Ray Kroc's box, who was the owner of the San Diego Padres. When I was fifth grade to eighth grade, I sat in, in the owner of the Padres box and heard uh, Ray Kroc and Ballard Smith and my father talk about 
uh, Major League Baseball and what went into thought processes of trading players. And so I was just exposed to so much at such a young age from having a dad who was a, not only a college coach, but when he coached at the pro level is when I was really exposed to things. And then as a high school age um, person, my dad was a head coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers. And um, I was exposed to so much at an age where I could really, really remember a ton of things and going on road trips and being a ball boy and all those things were so impactful. It sounds like you were absolutely immersed in that. And I knew a lot of your background, but I didn't realize, you know, the, the baseball influence, a little bit of the football influence and in being able to kind of, you know, learn professional sports literally from the ground level up. But the comment you had that was so insightful to me right there was, was about the initial meeting and the message for a pro coach to their team the very first time. I've been in, in locker rooms and I think it's fair to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, a coach can lose a team in that first day or so. What do you do to prepare yourself for that very first initial team meeting? Because uh, any player or any coach has been through that. They're both nervous on both sides, trying to get the lay of the land and figure it out. But how do you best prepare for that first meeting? Well, I think the, the number one thing is you've got to understand who your audience is. You've got to come up with a theme or identity to what that first speech is going to be about. Um, you're setting the tone, you know, culture's overused, but, but you're kind of setting the platform um, for what your vision is going to be. And again, when you're dealing with pro players, um, they're so smart, Dan, and you know better than anyone having been in the locker room um, for instance, when, when I'm coaching uh, the Golden State Warriors my second year, that first team meeting, I'm looking out and there's Avery Johnson. And, and Avery had, had played, I think, 15 years at the time. Um, Cliff Robinson, um, who just recently passed away, um, was a 14-year vet when I had him. Popeye Jones was an older veteran player. Nick Van Exel. And, and so not only are these guys veteran players, but then you've got to look at who they played for. And so if you're a, a coach, and I was a young coach at the time, coaching the Golden State Warriors, I'm thinking, well, this player played for Pat Riley. This player played for Greg Popovich. Um, and then how are you going to grab their attention? Because basically any player at any level, what they want to know from a coach is how are you going to help me become a better player individually and then how are you going to get the group to collectively play together but every player of any sport the bottom line what they want to know is can this coach or can this coaching staff or can this leadership group help me become a better player and then how are they going to do that and so I think every single time you get before your team um, you've got to be prepared you can't go into a practice and just wing it. And Chuck Daly, who in my eyes is, is, is the guy who had the most impact on me other than my father, um, like Chuck Daly was so prepared for every meeting we had. And he did not believe in over-talking. He actually, his philosophy was to under-talk so that his words would carry more weight. Um, and he believed in his assistant coaches doing most of the coaching in practice um, because when he got in a huddle, he wanted it to be like E.F. Hutton. 
where when he spoke, those players' ears perked up and they were sitting on their edge of the seats waiting for the message that Coach Daly was going to deliver. That's really interesting to hear um, because I would agree that uh, the best head coaches that I've been around or played for, um, they delegate very well to their assistant coaches so that the players respond and learn and take coaching from the other assistant coaches. But when it's time for the most insightful or the most important message that comes from the head coach, that they're ready and they're, they're, they're all ears, they're ready to take that, that touch point, that coaching point, and go with it. Now, I've seen your teams uh, before you got to Arkansas at Nevada, Reno, uh, for a couple of years during, during shoot-arounds. And I've been, I go to 30, 40, 50 shoot-arounds a year. And I thought your shoot-arounds were as prepared as anybody's that I had seen in college basketball over the last couple of years. And the reason why I thought that is because people can learn in, in multiple ways. You can see it, you can hear it, or you can read it. And you tried to cover each of those ways during shoot-around to make sure that your teams were prepared. How did you come about that philosophy, and why is that important to you? Well, I think, I mean, you're a thousand percent right, Dan, that, that everybody does learn differently and everybody retains information differently. And um, I think probably, you know, I changed when I got fired from Golden State um, Warriors. I got a phone call from Michael Lombardi, who I did not know. And Michael was a, an executive at the time with the Oakland Raiders. And Michael said, hey, look, I've been fired before. I know what it's like. You sit at your home. You stare at your computer. You need to, um, if you need a place to come, an office where you can watch video of NBA games, I want you to know the Raiders because Al Davis at the time, their owner, was a huge NBA fan. Um, and so the Raiders opened, opened the doors for me to come in and actually have a normal business day for what a coach's life would be a fired coach who normally would just be sitting at home. And so I would go into the Oakland Raiders office. Um, Michael Lombardi had an office next door to his um, where I would be able to watch game tape. More importantly, I wanted to learn from him um, how he constructed a roster, what was important uh, to the Oakland Raiders in the draft room. Um, and then he would take me down on the practice field and watch practice. And at the time, uh, Norv Turner was coaching. Um, and so I started picking up concepts that NFL teams do. I think that the that, that NFL coaches are the most organized and best coaches in the entire world. They have to deal with an enormous amount of people. Um, late game situations become so important. You've got to be overly detailed uh, coaching in the NFL. Um, and then from the Raiders, what I ended up doing a few years later is I wanted to go learn from John Gruden. And I went to Tampa Bay when he was coaching the Buccaneers, and I spent a few days there watching. He had these big cards um, when they worked on their two-minute drills, and he actually wrote up those cards. And he would hold up on one side. It would be um, for his defense for, to see the opposition's two-minute game or two-minute plays that they were going to try to cover. Uh, and then on the other side was, was what the scout team was going to run. And it was color-coded. Um, and so I decided to try to take that concept into our game preps. Um, and then Mike Fratello, who I worked with with the Memphis Grizzlies, also used big play cards or play sheets um, in game preparation 
um, in our shoot around. So I kind of tried to combine a lot of the stuff that I had learned from Chuck Daly um, and then also had learned from this NFL new world um, that I tried to explore and, and combined them into what we wanted to do um, in shoot arounds. And then Doc Rivers, who I worked for in Orlando, was really, really great at taking concepts. Doc loved boxing. And so he would use boxing clips uh, to try to come up with themes on game day um, for different opponents. So I tried to take all these different areas that I had learned from and, and try to put them into game preps. And, and then how do you have fun and, and, and with it, with your game themes for each opponent? So, and then we have different stations and I got those from football as well, different station breakdowns for what we're trying to take away defensively with a game prep and then offensively, which I think is one area that basketball coaches have to have to get better. We're so worried about trying to stop or contain the opponent's offense, but then we forget how are we going to look at our opponent's defense and create easier scoring opportunities at the offensive end. Want to give a brief moment to talk about our newest sponsor, eBay. Whether rare, dead stock, or the latest release, find the exact shoe you're looking for. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the place to go to cop the pair you've been eyeing. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent professional authenticators. A team of experienced Sneaker authenticators verify the box, logo, stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an authenticity guarantee tag that includes a digital stamp of authenticity. And it also protects sellers with a verified return process. And for sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees on sneakers over $100, making it free to sell or flip your collection. Go to ebay.com slash sneakers today. eBay, the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. Yeah, that's, uh, that's such an a interesting point in the fact that you mentioned that football head coaches have so many different things that they have to manage. They have to take all this information, sift through it quickly, and make a decision that, quite frankly, their team and the whole entire stadium is going to have to live with. But the way that you tailored that to a basketball pregame shoot-around uh, is really unique. And like I said, I, I thought it worked. It works really well when I've seen it. Um, but you're somebody who's who's been a head coach at multiple levels. You're in the CBA, which is now essentially the G League the NBA in college, but you as a very young head coach got your start in the, in the CBA. And what I don't think a lot of people understood when you were a head coach in the CBA at that time, you were wearing multiple hats. I mean, you were head coach, general manager, uh, scout, advanced scout, all these different things, player development coach. But I came across a really unique stat that I don't know if you've seen this, you may have, but I thought it was really impressive that between, I think it was the years of 1990 to 1997 uh, in the CBA, you had the most guys that were called up from the minor leagues to the NBA. That has to make you feel extremely proud of the preparation and the work that you put in to help guys achieve their goals and dreams. 
No question, Dan. I, you know, and I think I got an opportunity to coach two NBA teams at a really young age because of the success of our players going to the next level. And, um, you know, even, even after the, my stints with Sacramento um, Kings and Golden State Warriors, um, when I went back to the G League to coach for the Reno Bighorns and then the, the, the next year with the Los Angeles Lakers uh, D League team, um, the LA Defenders, like your job as a minor league coach is to try to help your players better themselves financially, plain and simple. Like, yes, you're here to win games. Yes, you mentioned the different hats you have to wear as far as being a promoter. You got to try to get people interested in minor league basketball, which is the hardest thing to do from a fan's perspective. Um, you are the general manager because you're making trades. You've got to know which players are, are leaving to go overseas, which players are coming back, what players are going to get cut from NBA teams, what players could get called up. So you have all these different areas that you're trying to improve on. Um, but the bottom line is how do you get your guys either called up to the NBA or how do you get a player who's on a C-level contract in the G League, which at that time was about $15,000, how do you get that player overseas to Italy or Spain or Greece where they can make more money um, and better their family from a financial standpoint? So we took great pride in, in trying to have players have career years. Um, and you do that through a multitude of ways, whether you motivate players through statistics, whether you just motivate them through um, film work. Um, but, it, but it's always been great we've taken great pride in, you know, that Reno Bighorn team had uh, Jeremy Lin, Hassan Whiteside, Danny Green. We're talking about guys that have made a lot of money in their careers. Um, and our job was to put them in a position where they could showcase their skills and then behind closed doors, put an enormous amount of time into skill development, identifying areas of weakness for the player, identifying areas of strength and then coming up with a game plan so that that player can better and further his career. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it's really, really important um, at that minor league level, Dan, to, to, to try to have players get called up. Um, and even way back, those Rapid City teams, when you talked about that time frame of players, more players getting the call up, it's not really about the NBA call up. Uh, to me, it's about having a career at the NBA level and, and players like Sidney Lowe to go on and have careers or, um, you know, it's so important. Um, but, but, but just as important as the call-ups to me is the, is the guys that went on to coaching um, that we had. I mean, Wayne Tinkle played on those Rapid City teams. And, you know, obviously Wayne's a very successful college coach. And there's just so many guys that you come in contact with um, Keith Smart played on those teams, and Keith was a former head coach of two NBA teams. He's been a longtime NBA assistant coach as well. So uh, just the relationships that you form and, and to see guys go on and have great careers is, is really rewarding. Yeah, I 100% agree with one, one of the things you touched on there was, you know, it's about creating a career, not just creating a call-up. And to, not enough people, I think, understand that uh, it's the career that you're after, not just the call-up. Um, and, and Dan, along those same lines, and you know from being drafted, I think sometimes like players don't understand at the collegiate level 
like a player um, that has time existing on their college eligibility. Sometimes guys get anxious and, and, and they don't understand that, you know, being a second round pick doesn't mean you're going to have a career in the NBA. Um, and, 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 and guys just don't get that, you know, players think, well, I'll just go to the G league if it doesn't work out. Well, the G league today is not what it used to be. Now there's 30 teams basically that have their own money. So think about how watered down minor league basketball is today than minor league basketball was 15 years ago when there was just 12 teams and, and rosters at the NBA level were 13 instead of 15. So the league is watered down um, as well as minor league basketball is watered down. So it's really, really hard to have a sustainable career. And when I mean that, I mean by more than three years in the NBA. Um, you know, I, I, in today's NBA world, I don't think it's that hard to put on an NBA uniform uh, to be on a 10-day. I don't think it's that hard anymore. Um, but I do think it's really hard any time in the history of the NBA to have a career that's really, really difficult. And players don't understand the amount of work and luck sometimes that it takes to have a, have a career that's, that's, that's three years or longer. I think that's one of the advantages that you as a college coach with NBA experience as well as G League experience have the ability to share with players that are in your program just exactly the things that you just explained. You have to navigate through all these different thoughts to make sure that you're making the correct decision at the right time. Um, but after your NBA head coaching experiences, you did something that not a lot of coaches who've been head coaches in the NBA would be willing to do. You were willing to put your ego uh, aside and get into the college game as an assistant coach. Uh, you did it with Herb Sendek at Arizona State, who I think a very underrated coach. Um, and then you were at LSU with Johnny Jones for a bit before you got your head coaching opportunity at college. What was it about the college game that enticed you to go that route as opposed to staying on an NBA bench? Well, really interesting, Dan, because what, what happened was um, when I got fired from the Sacramento Kings, I still had three years left on my um, NBA you know, head coaching contract. And so what I decided to do, I wanted to reconnect with my sons. Um, I was a single dad at the time. Um, and so I really focused on being the best parent that I could possibly be. Um, but I still wanted to be involved in basketball. So what I ended up doing was I spoke to a lot of college teams that came into the Bay Area. I was living in Northern California at the time. Um, so if somebody was playing, if Vanderbilt was playing uh, St. Mary's at St. Mary's. I would speak to them. Um, I'd come to their practice after practice, uh, talk to their ball club. And I did that, whether it was a team playing at USF or a team playing at Santa Clara or um, Cal or Stanford. And then it would also allow me to watch games. And I also did a ton of media. I did uh, college games on TV. Um, I did a lot of NBA radio stuff. Um, but I decided that I wanted to go the college route because I wanted to be a head coach, Dan. Um, and I didn't want to go back to the NBA and be, a, and be an assistant coach and work my way back to maybe being another head coach because you don't get three opportunities very often uh, at the NBA level. And I spent a lot of time researching how many people and how few people had gotten three opportunities at that level. So it was probably the most humbling 
experience that I've ever had going from an NBA head coach um, and even being a head coach at the G League level uh, to then being a, a college assistant. Because um, really, in college, when I went to Arizona State and even at LSU, like I was, I might have had the title, um, a good title, but I was really the third assistant. I wasn't the top assistant. I wasn't the second. Si I was really the third assistant because I was learning. I didn't know anything about scheduling. I didn't know anything at all about recruiting. And so I was really there learning. As a former NBA head coach, I was there learning from college assistants. Um, and so it was humbling. Uh, but I have an incredible wife, um, you know, who was behind the plan. Um, but after my first year working for Coach Sendek, I thought I would get a college job. And I applied for every opening. I didn't get anything. I couldn't even get phone calls back. I couldn't get emails returned. Um, after the second year, it was the same thing. And then kind of that was like a career-defining moment. Um, after two years at Arizona State, I got an opportunity to go back to the Minnesota Timberwolves um, and work for Philip Saunders, who had played for my dad at the University of Minnesota. Um, Flip and I worked together in the minor leagues in Rapid City. When I was growing up and Flip played for my dad, um, I emulated his game. I wanted to be Flip Saunders as the player. Flip's other two assistants with the Timberwolves were Sam Mitchell and Sidney Lill, both guys that had played for my dad. Um, and I, it would have brought me back to Minnesota where my dad was the, the first coach in the inaugural season with the T-Wolves. Um, and instead I went to LSU, did not know Johnny Jones, had never met him before. Um, and, and that was kind of the, you know, the, 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 the career defining moment for me, uh, to go to Baton Rouge, um, and be in the SEC. And that, that door really was the one that opened to go to Nevada. If I don't go to, um, you know, to, to, to the SEC and, and, and work in a powerful conference like the Southeastern conferences, I probably don't get the opportunity in Nevada. And then even then. Um, I needed an administration at Nevada to gamble uh, on a coach that had no prior head coaching division one experience. And, and um, you know, I'll forever be grateful for, for somebody believing in me that had a little bit different background than what the normal division one coach would have. Well, four years at Nevada, um, all in the postseason, three of them in the NCAA tournament leads you to an opportunity to get back to the SEC in Arkansas. Um, and unfortunately, the, the COVID-19 pandemic put a, a, a halt on all sports, including the NCAA tournament. You guys seem to be one of the teams that were poised um, as maybe a sleeper team to, to pick up a win or two in the NCAA tournament because you guys were trending in the right direction. What's the future like? look like in Fayetteville, in your opinion? Well, we, we, we're, we've had a great recruiting, you know, class. We have four freshmen, um, you know, that are going to be really important uh, to our program. It was a top 10 recruiting class, regardless of, of which publication was, was, was evaluating uh, the recruiting class. Um, we, we, you know, we feel like we have incredible facilities. I'm working for an, awesome athletic director in Hunter Juracek. Um, and so from a facility standpoint, from a conference standpoint, uh, from our fan base, which we have an insane 
uh, fan base. They're, they're so passionate. You know, you want to coach somewhere where basketball is important. Yeah, they're, they're, when, when you're in a place like that, there's added pressure. Um, but basketball means something uh, to the Razorback fan base and, and, um, and to the state of Arkansas. So we feel like we're in a great, you know, place to coach. Um, but there's a lot of hard work as well. There's so many great coaches in this conference. There's so many great places, you know, when you recruit against uh, Kentucky and, and Auburn and, and Tennessee, and you can go on and on, Texas A&M and Mississippi State. Like, they're all really great schools. Um, they all have a great fan base, and their programs are really well coached. So. Um, Recruiting is difficult, um, and every night you play against somebody that you know um, is, is really, really well prepared um, by, by their coaching staff. So it's not easy, uh, but like you mentioned, Dan, last year we had won 20 games, and so if you win 20 games in a league like the SEC, you give yourself an opportunity to be in NCAA talks, and that's what you, 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 know, what you play for. You mentioned the passion of, of the fans in the SEC, and I've had a chance to call a couple games for Westwood One Radio uh, in the SEC, Texas A&M and at Kentucky, and you're right. The fans there are passionate. I remember the Arkansas teams where Nolan Richardson was the coach with Corliss Williamson, Scotty Thurman. So if you can get them going again in that direction, get them maybe to a Final Four like those guys did, I believe, a national title game, uh, I'm sure those fans will be even more passionate. But – Last question before I let you go, and I do appreciate all the time. You watch the NBA bubble right now, and the, the coaches finally have a relaxed dress code. Khakis, polo shirts. That's something that's become the norm for you coaching in college. Is that something that you would like to see change for, for basketball from the NBA all the way down to high school and the, just getting rid of suits and ties? Uh, you know what, Dan? When I first started doing it, it was like really risky. I mean, even at Arkansas, like I had to ask uh, Hunter Juracek not once, not twice, several times, like, are you sure you're cool? You know, because people aren't used to seeing that. Um, having grown up in San Diego, California, like it's really hard to get me out of a pair of shorts and a T-shirt. Like anything other than shorts, T-shirt, and flip-flops is dressing up to me. So, um, but I once you do it, it's really amazing because we've had some assistants. Ah, I want to wear the suit and all this, but number one, I think it makes you look uniform. Number two, nobody's trying to outdress anybody. Number three, not everybody has the same salary. Um, and it's easy to get a pair of Nike and, and get the free Nike polo. Um, it's easy to pack. Your dry cleaning is not as expensive. Um, and more importantly, you, you, you can coach. And you're not inhibited uh, by a sport coat. Um, and so I love it. Like, you know what? Yep. From the head coach all the way to our grad assistants, we look the same. And, and we're all a, a, as a team together. And there's no ego in how we dress. And um, I hope that the NBA coaches like it. I think it's an awesome look. I think it's a uniformed look. And um, I'm all behind it 100%, Dan. <laughs> well, I figured you would because I know you were one of the initial trendsetters with that. So um, I look forward to hopefully catching an Arkansas game this upcoming season and calling it 
whether it's during the regular season, uh, whether it's in the NCAA tournament, I hope that our paths cross again because I do remember this, and I'll leave you with this. After being drafted as a rookie playing in that summer league, I had no idea what to expect as far as preparation from a coach. And I couldn't have had a better coach for summer league in preparing me for how you had to read a scouting report, how you had to watch games. And so I, I appreciate that, uh, what you did for me there, getting me ready. And it's been fun to reconnect with my college broadcasting and your college career these last few years as well. No, thanks so much, Dan. And I, I, so that was the Shaw Summer League in Boston. Is that correct? Yeah, so it was 2 and we ended up going, I believe it was 6-0, and and we won the championship. And then shortly yep. thereafter, you headed uh, to become the head coach at Golden State. So uh, those, those were good times for sure. And, Dan, I still think to this day that that was as good a Summer League team as there was. Because um, we, I think that year we might have had three first-round draft picks um, I think Udonis Haslam was actually on that team. Yes. Um, and it's so interesting when you talk about evaluating players, because I remember um, Pete Babcock, our general manager, was overseas for a short time during the summer league. And, I, and Pete and I were talking, going through the roster. And I kept telling him, like, hey, Udonis Haslam's as good as anyone we got. And he kept wanting to know about all our draft picks. And I kept going back to Udonis and his path, I think, took him to Germany. Um, after that Atlanta Hawks Summer League team, he went to Germany and then came back. And now he's had, what, an incredible maybe 20-year NBA career. Um, but it's, it's amazing. I think that was one of the great Summer League teams of all time. Yeah, that was fun. I remember that. And you are 100% correct. Uh, Udonis Haslam was amazing in that, in that summer league. I couldn't, myself, being new to the NBA, I was like, how is this guy not getting a <laughs> roster spot with anybody? He's averaging, you know, double-figure points, rebounds, all the correct defensive rotations. Uh, but you know what? I think it worked out pretty well for him now. He's, from all accounts, he's basically the mayor of Miami, um, and he's had a tremendous career. So, Coach, I appreciate you joining. And, again, hopefully our paths connect again this college basketball season. Thanks, Dan. Keep doing what you do. I love it. Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. You're doing awesome stuff for, for all the basketball people out there. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.